Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. I'm Dolores McElroy. And today we're talking about the highly fictionalized biopic about Emily Bronte, which is called Emily. It's currently playing in theaters. Um, we seem to be inadvertently continuing to talk about um, um, films aimed at women here. Um, it just seems to be the direction we're heading, and so we're going to go with it. Um, Emily seems as if it's, it's very much part of a built-in audience for 19th century female literary figures, with Jane Austen being, of course, the box office champ. Um, you know, whole clubs devoted to Jane Austen, everything. Janeites, as they call themselves, and they show up for everything Jane in in movies as well as anything else. And I think the Brontes come into this too. So there just seems to be a kind of predominantly um, female and probably middle-aged and up um, <laughs> audience that's going to see, um, would be going to see a movie like Emily, which is doing solid box office from what I've seen so far. Um, so anyway, we're going to keep going with this next week. We're, we're next, uh, rather next episode, we're dealing with Poker Face, which is stars and is produced by uh, Natasha Leone, for example, and we'll continue. With it. And it's a very female friendly show, as actors are reporting. Um, so we're, we're just going to go with it. Warning before we head in, as usual, there are going to be spoilers galore um, um, in this discussion. So let's just plunge into our basic takes on Emily um, Dolores. Um, you first. Go ahead. Okay. All right. I'm going to start by framing my relationship to the Brontes. <laughs> so I think we both have different relationships to them. And maybe mm -hmm. this informs our relative enjoyment or lack thereof. Yes. <laughs> so it's uh, Eileen and I have not talked about our opinions in depth, dear listeners. But uh, it looks like this is going to be one where we disagree again. <laughs> so mm -hmm. hopefully it'll be fun. Um, okay. So my relationship to the Brontes is that I grew up with them. I, they're all around my house. <laughs> uh, my mother is a huge, huge fan, um, but I am nowhere near any kind of expert. I have never read any biography about any Bronte sister. I did read Weathering Heights once. I am much more familiar with the 1939 film version um, with Laurence Olivier and um, Merle Oberon, uh, directed by William Wyler. It's one of my top 10 films, films of all time. Um, uh, so I know bits and bobs about Bronte lore just because my mom told me about them over my lifetime. Um, I also have my mother to thank for the fact that I did visit the Bronte Parsonage and they're sort of the museum. Um, it's now a museum of the home where they live, uh, where they lived um, in Haworth in North Yorkshire. And uh, it was one of the best days of my life. I will never forget going there. Um, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. I'm actually regretting saying this out loud because I don't want anyone else to go <laughs> to make it, <laughs> to overrun it with tourism. Um, it is so, the moors are so unspeakably beautiful. Um, this film is filmed there on location at the Bronte House and Museum the, the, the old parsonage in Haworth. Um, and I, I, I can't, I can't express my reverence for that landscape. It is so, so gorgeous. So I'm coming at this with like a ton of emotional residence, um, that, that Emily Bronte has for me and that landscape, but I've got like almost no real biographical knowledge of, of the girls. I know that Emily died young. Um, you know, I know that they wrote all these little freaky stories in miniature <laughs> when they were little. I really don't know all that much. I know their brother Branwell was a wastrel and a drunkard um, and spent a lot of time down at the pub. 
but I think I know um, just enough to enjoy this to the max and be not irritated at the fictional <laughs> at the fictionalization. So before I went to see this film, my mom was like, wait a minute, there's a there's a film about Emily Bronte that's doing good business. And I was like, yes. And she's like, OK, I cannot imagine her story resonating with the general public. So my mother said, OK, what sex angle are they going to invent? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she said, what soap opera story are we going to have for this poor soul who had nothing to do but cough up blood, <laughs> cough up blood and take a walk? So in part, my mother's true. They did invent a sex angle. (laughs) Or my mother's right. Um, And it apparently has no basis, in fact. Um, In general, I enjoyed this film very much. I knew that it was fictionalized, um, but I didn't have a finely tuned sense of in what ways. Um, I really liked the lead. Emma Mackey, do you say, or Emma McKee? I don't know how to say her name, but I don't know either. Yeah. Cool. I I really like Emma Mackey. I liked her in Sex Education, this Netflix show. I don't really like that show, but I I liked her. She plays like a rebellious young girl in that show, like a teenager. Um, I I thought the pacing was fantastic. Um, I thought they did a really good job of creating or choosing juicy vignettes. Um, I thought it kind of clipped along. Um, I thought the cinematography was absolutely stunning. There are several memorable shots that maybe we'll talk about as we get into it more. Um, The thesis of the film sort of seems to be that um, Branwell, the the girl's brother, and a possibly made-up character called William Waitman. um, Oh, no, he's real. He's oh, real. he's real. Okay, so I guess he was the uh, the curate, meaning the, the kind of like and... assistant vicar, yeah. right, um, yeah. to their father. Um, in real life, um, they posit that Emily has an affair with him, and it's kind of like a combo between her uh, adventures with her brother Branwell and her love affair with William Waitman that gives her the stuff to make Weathering Heights. It seems like. Um, I really enjoyed the performance of Oliver Jackson Cohen, who plays Waitman. Um, I thought he was extremely handsome and, uh, I don't know, uh, just fit the type. Um, Manola Darkus has a funny line about him, she says. Um, uh, so he plays a very serious young man who gets carried, you know, he gets sort of carried away by his emotions for Emily and they have an affair. But Manola Darkus from the New York Times wrote, his eyes say no, his unruly hair says otherwise. (laughs) And it's true, you know, from the beginning that, you know, he's so handsome. Obviously, they're going to have an affair. Um, In general, I found the love story compelling. Um, I mean, it wasn't the deepest, but it wasn't the shallowest. And um, I found the end of the love affair quite gut wrenching, Um, you know, just kind of the utter helplessness when someone holds your fate in their hands and you have no say in how they feel or how they choose to proceed. In in many ways, Emily is put in the position of Heathcliff um, in this love affair. The, the curate wants to call it off because he's a man of God and he feels like they're sinning um and she doesn't understand uh you know she she does not bear that same guilt (laughs) and it seems evident to her that they belong together so why can't they just carry on um so uh i i actually was like a little nervous when i heard that this was going to be a quote feminist take on the brontes because they're inherently feminist um i mean i don't know they're brilliant self-directed young women who know their own minds um Mm -hmm. but i um i i 
I was actually relieved. I didn't sense that it was belabored in trying to achieve that aim as a film. Um, the, to, it, to my mind, there were no cringe speeches about women's equality or anything that was kind of like trying to be very 21st century. Um, to me, it, it, the film portrayed her pretty straightforwardly as a you know very brilliant, uh, if somewhat dark, questioning soul. Um, and I think this is what resonates with all those, uh, you know, all the women fans of the Brontes throughout the history of, you know, the Bronte sisters. Um, obviously, they've had like a vibrant female fandom. Um, this was true in the theater where I went to see the film. I went to see it at the Piedmont. Oh, also, I went to see it the day before at Bay Street in uh, in Emeryville. Um, and <laughs> they showed the film out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was insane and it was like really dark it was like i was like am i having like some kind of a stroke um and it was hilarious the projectionist was like yeah sorry we can't do anything about it and i was like cool what? thanks and so, yeah i guess all you do here is project movies but that really that you don't Why know how to you? do that yeah. yeah um so that sucked um and it was funny there was there were only two uh, other people they were women like maybe my age like 40 ish mm-hmm. um in the theater at bay street and then when i went to the piedmont theater actually the, th- the theater was almost full it was full of all kinds of people but in particular there were like a, there was a gaggle of women who you could tell were hardcore bronte fans mm-hmm. Um, they seem to enjoy the film. They came out of it talking about the historical inaccuracies or differences, but they seem to be bubbling like they enjoyed it, at least. Um, and I was thinking about that. I mean, you uh, like you get it, you know, like they're uh, the Bronte sisters. Ugh, I mean, so much about what they write is about being penned up and being women with much to express and very few avenues for expression. Um, and this is still, you know, a, a current predicament in many ways. I mean, of course, like, well, you know, women by and large are still not taken as seriously. Their internal lives aren't given a lot of screen time or, uh, you know, cultural weight. Um, so things haven't changed that much. But I thought it was like, uh, I don't know, I was like cheered by the presence of these women in the theater. Um, and it's like, yep, still going strong. That <laughs> the sort of like lady love for the Brontes. Um I liked how they, uh, I, I get they could have made it darker. I was waiting. I mean, the thing that one sort of knows about Emily Bronte and the thing that's memorable about Weathering Heights is the like darkness and violence um, beneath, well, beneath and on the surface. Um, and I, I liked that the film went there. Um, Waitman, Emily's love interest, uh, in part distances himself from her because there's something quote ungodly about her in his eyes um and that's true you know she's spooky as hell and i haven't again i haven't read much about her um some of what i know is from ann carson's the glass essay and carson is a, a scholar and a writer and um she's also from yorkshire and she's got this beautiful essay about um, the end of one of her own love affairs and how she goes back to Yorkshire to stay with her mother on the moors, where she's from, just like the Brontes are from. And she's thinking about the end of this love affair. And um, she's also reading Weathering Heights and reflecting on Emily Bronte. And she talks about Emily Bronte's repeated reference to the figure of thou with a capital T. Um, and it's kind of this like ghostly 
channel, uh, as she describes it, that she has kind of a direct line to. Um, I'm not doing it justice, but it's. It, I guess the point is it's been like well commented upon, Emily Bronte's darkness and eeriness. Um, and that's one of the things I love best about her legend. Um, so this is this comes up uh, a lot in the film. Um, we will probably talk about this at length. There's a very memorable scene where Emily at a party of young people in her home, um, they're all they're each playing with this mask that uh, her father acquired. And the girls believed when they were younger that if one wore the mask, they could become someone else, someone from history or whatever. And Emily dons the mask and, ch- and channels the spirit of her dead mother. And it's a very memorable scene. Um, and this is just one aspect. And it connects to a lot of imagery in Wuthering Heights that we can get into. Um, but it's one way the film emphasizes her sort of like direct line to the occult <laughs> or something. Um, and uh, lastly, I, my favorite, favorite thing about this film was, uh, this one image that occurred at least twice about the experience of writing. Um, Emily, then Charlotte sits at, they each sit at the same desk in the cold dawn. They're each preparing to write. They've each had a personal trauma. Um, for Emily, it's the end of her love affair and the death of her brother, Branwell. And again, this may not be historically accurate, but in the film, she sits at her desk. It's It looks like it's dawn. She's got a candle. And um, she decides to snuff the candle out. And instead of like going inward and looking at the paper, she snuffs out the candle and opens her window onto the you know early morning. Um, and you can sort of see uh, the moors are not framed in any sort of like melodramatic way at this point it's a cloudy sky and bare trees but there's something about that cloudy sky and those bare trees that are giving her everything and then charlotte repeats the same gesture after emily's death presumably to begin to write jane Eyre. um and i i love that portrayal of the creative process i think it's so true like you don't really get stories from the depth of your being. You kind of get stories from the ether. You kind of get that you you need to become a channel and kind of get out of your own way. It's not an act of thinking very, very hard. It's kind of an act of becoming open. Um, and I, I love the way that that repeated image portrayed that that process. So uh, I dug it. <laughs> I, I've like I've got a lot more to say, but um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed it. Um, Eileen, tear it apart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you're in the vast majority. It's doing very well critically. There's only a couple of bad reviews that I saw. And again, as you already mentioned, it's doing well, you know, box office wise with audiences. Um, So, yeah, you're in the majority of of people who are whether they know that know a lot or don't know a lot. I don't know. Um, But people are liking it. In fact, I'll quote Nadola Dargis in her approving um, uh, statement about the writer-director, Frances O'Connor, who's also, as she puts it, an actress who's played her share of period heroines star- starring in the 1999 adaptation of Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, a film that, like this one, referring to Emily, takes a frisky approach to its source material. A frisky approach. A frisky <laughs> approach. This is where I trip, stumble, and fall over the entire project. A frisky approach to the Bronte sisters, to Emily Bronte. That and and this is 
full approval. This is like, yay. <laughs> is so stunning, so shocking, so horrifying that I, my anger, I don't even know how to contain it. I'm going to have to pour it into my review for Jacobin, which I'm writing. Uh, it, <laughs> but I'm totally defeated at this point. There, As far as I can tell, I just don't even know what to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just beggared. Uh, I sat there watching in just jaw-dropped horror from beginning to end. But, you know, I'm the opposite of you. you. You don't have a big investment. You know, it sounds like you know a fair amount. You were raised in an atmosphere of admiration for, you know, the Brontes and what they wrote. But I, you know, really got into them for a while. I read biographies of, you know, the whole family and of just Charlotte, et cetera. I've read several. Mm-hmm. And I got way into it. And to the point of feeling really, it's sort of like I have, I feel like I have a kinship with certain authors so it's uncle edgar Allan poe and it's my <laughs> cousins the brontes i mean I, I just feel an intense um i don't know what i don't even know how to put the uh, a feeling of connection that's strange but there it is so for me it's just beyond horror the, the kind of fictionalizing going on especially in the name of a feminist take is so stunning that it's like the, the life of emily bronte <laughs> Is such as you pointed out, the Bronte sisters are essentially feminist. <laughs> they mm-hmm. are because they're women who, in spite of all the ungodly restrictions placed upon them, triumphed in, in their lives. I mean, certainly Charlotte and Emily, uh, mm-hmm. and and should have, but thing, things happened, and at least her her reputation has become um, reclaimed to a great extent. I mean, she wrote to me, "The Tenant of Wildfell Hall" is right up there. Should have mm-hmm. been the third of the three um, novels. Um, she's she's also great. So, but Emily in particular, in my view, found a way to live her life that was so strong. She was famously so strong she scared people. Not just because she was, <laughs> as they call her in the movie, the strange one, strange, creepy, not like not like everyone else. But because she was just viscerally in every way, soul wise, physical wise, you know, everything, you know, my favorite story of hers is she was she was apparently attacked by a dog that was suspected of being rabid. Obviously, it wasn't because she didn't die, but but she literally came home, heated a knife and cauterized her own wound. (laughs) This is Emily Bronte. Uh I mean, Emily Bronte slid through a door into a world of her own where she could write. She not only wrote Wuthering Heights, she died very young, she was like 30 you know, tuberculosis, you know, just was the scourge of the family, killed her two older sisters, you know, art, it's one of the explanations for what killed um, Branwell, it's going to kill, it's going to kill, it's going to, you know, just sweep through the, all the children of Patrick Bronte. Um, but up to that point, she is living a life, most people, just people described as ecstatic on her beloved moors, you know, mm-hmm. so the idea that here she is this poor, victimized, subjugated spinster, He's just like, you are all high on something. <laughs> she, hmm. she found a way to live the best life a person like Emily Bronte could ever live. You know, there, she, it's depicted in the movie that there's an attempt to get her to follow in, the, in Charlotte's lead and get trained up to become a teacher or a governess, probably a teacher. And she's a fine scholar. There, that's not the problem. It's just that she cannot bear to be in society. She cannot bear the company of almost anyone except her own family. And of animals, her light, her her fundamental light is her family, the Moors, and animals. And guess what? You won't find any of in this version of 
life on the moors in Emily. There ain't an animal as far as you can see. And, you know, she has to be tutored in how to appreciate nature by, you know, her, the, the lusty curate that she screws in some bard or something. And I'm just like, wait, you have Emily Bronte being taught how to love nature when it's her leading fucking quality. Wait, wait, what was the instance? When does he do that? First, he does the rain speech, which he's rolling her eyes at when he first, he first yeah. a little, you know, sermon. And he talks about how appreciating the rain can unite us all and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, huh. uh-huh. <laughs> later, she says something about, and so I shall be trapped in this desolate place for the rest of my life. Uh, and he's like, he, he encourages her to appreciate, you know, the wonders that surround her and they're outside. I'm just mm. like, you're telling Emily fucking yeah. So at every turn, if you, for me, if you have any emotional investment in Emily Bronte as a person who actually lived and had certain qualities, it's just a feeling of constantly being rubbed raw because it's just, it's just thrown out the window. It's just like not interested, not interested in basic facts. She and her dog Keeper supposedly had practically twin soul relationships. She <laughs> She seldom didn't return from the moors with a baby animal that had somehow been lost or an injured animal that she rehabilitated. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, she was very, very tight with her sister, Anne. They were incredibly close. Well, Anne is a mere hey, you, nobody, the kind of cute kid who also lives (laughs) at the parsonage and has no lines. Mm -hmm. and, And there's a scene where Anne tells Emily you know, that the, the, their juvenilia, as it's called, which laid the foundation, all the writing they did as kids, and they were world builders. They, had, they lived in their imaginations in these elaborate worlds that they wrote about in minuscule writing, kind of secret minuscule writing that probably helped ruin Charlotte Bronte's eyesight. Um, <laughs> and they, they lived in them fervently. And there's a scene where, where Anne says, well, don't you think it's all kind of childish? <laughs> And then you're just like, it's just head exploding. Again, if you know anything mm-hmm. about Bronte, if you have any reverence at all for the idea of creative talent being nurtured in these supercharged childhoods that then, you know, give rise to genius as <laughs> adults, I, it, the whole thing just beggars belief. <laughs> so I was just, I was just stunned because in fact, the actual Emily Bronte story is far more cool and feminist than anything that's even approached in the film. So, and, and the idea that you always have to give Emily a sex life, you know, you always, mm-hmm. usually thwarted, is, is, is strange and embarrassing. And there's also, you know, there's utter liables of every character, like Charlotte. Charlotte, yes, she, she as, the, as the society changed from the, you know, a world that would allow for the romantic movement, was all this kind of supercharged you know, emotion and imagination, et cetera. And they, you know, things started clamping down and getting more religious and more uptight and more mm-hmm. uh, morally judgy. She did wind up, um, you know, not only suppressing Anne Bronte's books, but, but sort of doing an apology for her sister and, you know, mm. uh, describing her in certain ways that really influenced how people looked at, at her, which were, which were it was wrong, you know. But she did she did a kind of rewrite of her sister and her sister's life. Ooh, can um, I share a line um, related to that? Um, 
Okay, in in Anne Carson's uh, essay, the glass essay, she says Charlotte's preface to Weathering Heights is a publicist masterpiece, like someone carefully not looking at a scorpion crouched on the arm of the sofa. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's <laughs> okay. very right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so she definitely she thinks, of course, that she's helping her sister's reputation, and of course, it's looked on very like, oh God, what an awful way um, to handle this masterpiece. Um, but the way she's portrayed, it just gives her no respect. She's just this this pinched little horror who's there to rebuke Emily at every turn. It's very, mm-hmm. I don't know, CW plotting, um, very teen. Uh, it's just, it's crazy. And then the idea that, you know, only Emily finding her genius allow, uncorks Charlotte sufficiently to allow her to write Jane Eyre when Charlotte's Jane Eyre gets published first and then brings them all to fame and fortune. And That's what I thought. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're all writing all the time. They're all obsessively writing. You know, the mm-hmm. juvenilia goes right into writing. They write a book of poetry together, the three sisters under male pseudonyms. That they published first, it, it gets no traction when they initially pu- it gets re-released, of course, after the, the fame of Jane Eyre. Um, you know, makes her the talk of every literary salon. She winds up being tight with Thackeray. She's invited everywhere. It's a, she's a huge phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Wuthering Heights is a scandal because it's, you know, so much, you know, darker and more shocking um, even than Jane Eyre is. But at any rate, it's just at every turn, rewriting the story and for in for me, just the, the most bizarre ways, especially if you have a feminist agenda, that the, the how the whole how could she write Wuthering Heights, which is a favorite topic of conversation over the over the generations. There's mm-hmm. a there's a wonderful book called Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, where there's a whole satire of exactly this type <laughs> of take that there's no way she could have written it because it's a man's book. Mm-hmm. because it's it's so forthright to the point of being shocking about you know elemental passions etc and so dark and everything that there's no way a woman could have written it so it's branwell who must have written it and somehow you know the credit got taken away from him and there's an actual character who's being completely scorned in cold comfort farm who's that's his whole take he's writing a book on branwell <laughs> <laughs> he really wrote Wuthering for the hype, <laughs> as he keeps calling it. And so this movie actually goes and revisits that attitude. How could she have written it when she didn't live it? Well, it turns out she did mm. live it because she screwed the curate in the barn and everywhere else in the parsonage. Good luck mm-hmm. with that, by the way. <laughs> that you know, it's not like these rooms were just like go go for it. No one will ever notice. You're fucking around <laughs> all over the place. Nah, it wasn't that kind of society at all that would pay attention. So yeah, that somehow that <laughs> and her hanging around, you know, high on high on opiates with her brother, yeah, with her brother Branwell racing around the moors and going like Keith Cliff and Kathy did to peer in the window of neighbors' houses and all things. And it's just the ludicrousness of the idea that you can't write anything you haven't personally lived. This is how you get rumors that Shakespeare couldn't have written Shakespeare's plays. <laughs> this is where you yes, get this kind true. of literary nonsense, and so. I don't know. I could go on and on, but but why? Why? Well, now, now I'm with you. I'm being annoyed by that point because I- <laughs> oh, throughout, you know, this woman that I really, I really revere and admire because, again, just she was so unique. She was, again, so, so strong that she stood apart from the Bronte. Even I mean, in mm-hmm. that they recognized that she was. She was more, they were all unusual people to the point that being in society was a huge struggle for all of them. Mm -hmm. But she was another notch again 
of of difference and uniqueness that she had to negotiate. For, for me, her life was always a triumph. Everyone else is like, oh, that poor woman. And I'm like, that poor fucking woman? She found so many, given, again, the, the, the entrapping circumstance. It's not just being a woman. Being, being you know, not at all well-to-do. Um, this isn't explained in the movie, but there's a huge issue of finances. They make Patrick Bronte, the father, into this person who, I don't know, he's got some obsession with achievement or something that he's apparently, you know, coldly driving them all on mm. um, to the point that they're being driven out into the world to be teachers. And you don't know why. Well, the reason why is because he only had his living as long as he lived. He only has the parsonage, his house. You know, he's the vic- uh, yeah, he's the vicar. Um, and the income, as long as he lives. So he's, he's thinking, what's going to happen to my children when I die? They're all going to have to be able to support themselves or they're going to be destitute. They'll have nothing. So that's why they were all frantically trying to get a, trying to get a profession going. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that this is never explained to you. So you're just like, it's apparently just the cruel father's way. He likes to pick on his kids. I don't know. <laughs> so you have no idea of the desperation they all felt, uh, the urgency. And of course, the, the tragic irony is he outlives all of his children by many years. Mm. Um, so they needn't have ever tortured themselves. And it was torture for all of them. That was no, it was no picnic being a governess. Is you, you should get that idea from treating Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. <laughs> or, or, you know, it's dealt with by, you know, Anne and uh, Charlotte in their books. Um, they were, it was miserable. And being a low-level teacher isn't much better. So, I mean, really grim. Um, a grim prospects, a grim way to have to live, and Emily just could not do it. In spite <laughs> of the urgency that she should do it, just financially, she could not bear it, and that's how she wound up quitting, leaving, going back home, and becoming essentially the housekeeper after mm-hmm. the death of their aunt Elizabeth. Uh, I think her name was Elizabeth. It was played by uh, Gemma Jones in the movie. Um, she dies finally, and Emily takes over from from her, and that's what she does the rest of her life. But you know. It's not so. It's not entirely poor, poor her, because after all, she also, as as Charlotte points out, freedom was the breath of life to her. Meaning, she doesn't have to keep a schedule. She doesn't have to publicly present herself when she's terribly shy. Um, she can just be at home, do whatever work is involved there. Which, yeah, there's work, but the rest of your time, you can be roving around the moors, <laughs> communing with animals, communing with whatever sublime spirits are enlivening your world and mm-hmm. writing masterpieces you know she's also the mass she's also the great poet of the three sisters this gets acknowledged at her death um so it's just like for me that's not a bad life but for others she's she's this pitiable figure and i'm like she's not she's none of them are pitiable mm-hmm. but, I, mean, I think others are not as into the idea of i wrote a masterpiece and then died or several <laughs> for mm-hmm. me i'm like that's pretty good going. Um, <laughs> most of us don't write a masterpiece at all under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it, it, it was it's like some a movie designed to make me absolutely crazy and want to claw my face off. So that was my. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I'm with you. I um you know now I'm annoyed in retrospect that she couldn't commune with the Moors more, <laughs> like on her own. You're right. She's she's yeah. always with these well, guys one other irony she as far as anyone knows i mean of course we, there's something we can't she was very private we hardly even have any of her letters um and she didn't even like to write letters plus i'm sure she didn't save any but um at any rate charlotte was the one who had the huge huge 
love affair that was ultimately unrequited and and drove her to a breakdown. The master of the school where she you know was trained as a teacher, um, Constantin Heger, H-E-G-E-R, I'm not sure I'm saying it right, in mm-hmm. Brussels. She falls wildly in love with him. He was married. You know, he encouraged her to some extent. It's not it's hard to assess um, in that she was so brilliant that, you know, he was interested in her. But you know, later on, he wrote about how remarkable she was. And that's we chiefly know anything about him because she fell obsessively in love with him. And mm. finally, he cut her off altogether. She wouldn't stop begging and pleading. <laughs> oh, God. To, it was horrifying. But, you know, it's also amazing to read about because she's living. She's really is living. Whether heightened torture, yes, tortured emotional state that for me anyway, it's like she's actually got it. <laughs> Other people would probably say, what a hysteric. I'm like, no, if you fall in love and it's unrequited, she is writing exactly what it's like, exactly <laughs> what it's like. And so she comes home and she's, I think it's months that she has to be in bed. She's a complete breakdown over. The- so it's so weird to have Charlotte's experience given over to Emily when, as far as anyone knows, she never had it. So it's just like, ah! <laughs> mm-hmm. or, but again, no one cares. Who cares? You know, no one <laughs> shit. If this is resembles Emily Bronte's life in any way or not, nobody cares anymore. So in, as in so many other things, I am just talking to like into the wind. It's just like all the winds are against me culturally. So it's just that's also part of the bitterness and the fury of just like this is just another example of how everything I care about is getting dismantled and destroyed and in front of me and nobody gives a shit. It's really a lonely, lonely feeling like, wow, (laughs) even Emily, you can just tell exactly your report. Women who know the life story and can compare and contrast, but they don't care. They Mm. don't care. It's like everyone loving that horrifying version of Little Women. That horrifying version. And me and my friend Sue being the only two women and only two people who saw that movie who had any investment at all in the world of Little Women, in the author of Little Women, in Little Women. Mm -hmm. And just sitting there going, I I can still remember Sue standing up, pointing at the screen and saying, nope. And it was, (laughs) But there are going to be very few, fewer and fewer such moments in my life because more and more, nobody gives a shit. And that's where we are. Okay. Speaking of the wind, do you want to talk about the mask scene? It is the best scene. Okay. And does that bear any, is there any basis in fact? As far as I know, no, but as far as I know, no, but that doesn't mean I'm, you know, I could be just not remembering that there was some such thing. Certainly there was a supernatural supernatural aspects of their lives i know charlotte was definitely a believer you know there's a a much criticized part of jane eyre if you know jane eyre it's where it's a supernatural thing happens jane eyre is has left rochester her great love is just you know miles 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 away nowhere in his vicinity for the reasons that have to do with you know how how their intended marriage falls apart anyway he he in the in the extremes of his agony and what's happening with him calls out to her And she hears him and she says, I'm coming, (laughs) I'm coming. And she then leaves where she is, you know, hundreds, hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles away and (laughs) journeys to go to him. And then later he tells her there was this night when I was like screaming for you basically out the window. And yes, she heard him. And, 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 and and he says, I thought I heard you. So anyway, people criticize this saying that was such a departure 
from uh, from the rest of the book, which it isn't. I don't know what they're talking about. But at any rate, she got a lot of flack. And she said very simply, well, but it happened. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you know, she, she had an experience of this thing. So mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, I don't know how, to what extent it applied to all the whole family. But I, one gets, a, certainly there's aspects of Wuthering Heights. There's a ghost Kathy wandering the moors and, mm-hmm. and so on. So I, I, I think there's a certain... Uh, extent to which the family's imbued with supernatural forces. Certainly they were, they were intensely religious, though uh, I think em- uh, Emily's was a more unorthodox <laughs> <laughs> than Jane uh-huh. um, or Anne's. And, but, you know, you, it always borders on the scary. If you ever read Tenet of Wildfell Hall, which, you know, most people don't, but it's quite great. There's this amazing scene where a woman, it's, it's, it's a very, very feminist book, it was, and it's getting credit for it now. It's about a, a woman who's or, he got a horribly abusive, dissipated husband, winds up leaving him because he's getting right to the point where, where the abuses of their kid, the, the son, the little son, it's really approaching, you're, you feel the son is going to be molested at any point. Um, it's, yeah. it's very daring in that and she escapes and she's living under a pseudonym and hidden and she's being helped by her brother um, um, she escapes him um, but at any rate something happens that he winds up falling ill he's on his deathbed and she goes back to him she's presenting kind of a Christian way of trying to comfort him and bring him back to God but the way it reads now it's like she's torturing him <laughs> on his deathbed she's so intensely religious and she's so bringing to the fore the absolute necessity of making himself right with God at a point where he's dying. That mm-hmm. to the modern reader, it really reads like payback in a way that I, I don't think was intended. As far as I know, Anne was very, very religious in an Orthodox. Wow. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so there creeps into even their religiosity <laughs> a kind of scarier quality. So like, you know, the famous poem by Emily, um, No Cowards, what is the thing that, how am I forgetting the line? It's such a beautiful line. No coward is mine. Don't know. Sorry. I think that's the first line. It's beautiful, beautiful poem. But it goes immediately into, you know, her kind of relationship to God. But again, in an Emily way, which just makes you kind of go, oh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the scary edge is attached to all things Bronte. There's a reason they're, they're big figures in, in the, the world of the Gothic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so so the the mask scene is the most successful to me of the scenes, and you're right, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. There's a there's a there's a one shot of when Emily is in this little I think I don't know if it's a bar. There's hay in it, so I assume it's a barn, um, and she's waiting for him to meet her, and it's going to be that's it. That, I wrote that down too. Yes, yeah, sorry, keep going. <laughs> and she's picturing him coming toward her through the window. Right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And and he's coming closer, but by a leap each time you focus the window, he's he, there's a leap forward. Um, but she's not actually looking out the window at the time. Is that right? Am I remembering? That uh, right? Possibly. I don't I know. Don't remember it, if she's sitting or actually looking. But at any, I rate, think she's looking. There's yeah. a leap forward quality that's super well done, and it's just a gorgeously framed shot of him coming across the moors, striding across yeah. the moors. Really, really memorable and beautiful. So the cinematography is gorgeous. Um, absolutely. And this, the mask scene is super evocative because the mask is a very creepy mask. Masks are creepy anyway, but this one is exceptionally. It's one of those, you know, just it's just a white mask. Very simple. Yeah. And, and she, in it, go ahead. in the world of this film, I mean, correct me if this is historically accurate. Um, 
in the world of this film, Emily is much more uh, in touch with her grief for the loss of their dead mother yeah, she's than the, the other sisters. Who's, yes, overtly still referring to it and holding on to it. It's it's a little odd because the, the, the deaths of, she, she died when they were so young, that the deaths of their two older sisters, you know, the, the model for uh, Lowood School that's in oh, Jane right. Eyre is, is, is actually from the school they attended. I forget the name of the real school. And it was the, the four eldest daughters. So it was Maria, Elizabeth, um, Jane, and, and Emily were all there. And the first two daughters felt the conditions were so horrible that it aggravated any tendency toward illness you had. The first two daughters um, fell ill with tuberculosis. One died there. I think it was Maria. And then the other one came home and died at home. And so they, there were the two younger sisters right there, sort of intimately living through the deaths of uh, tuberculosis of their, of their uh, sisters. And of course, that's, that will Im- incubate inside you. And sure enough, they both die late, you know, and they both die as young women themselves of tuberculosis, but years later. So, yeah, so making it all hinge on the mother was a little odd, but again, I'm I'm assuming just for adaptation purposes made it made it the the loss of the mother is the big thing. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is especially big for 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 Emily and that she is bringing the power of her own grief like to bear on them again and releasing them all cuz they all start responding to her directly as their mother and getting yes. her to stay with them and the winds and of course the wind suddenly kicks up and blow doesn't it blow all the windows open? Yes. In this eerie way. And then and then she, they think she's going and they all rush to the windows calling after her. And it's very, very well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And the thesis of this film seems it seems to be that the creative power comes from the mother, mm-hmm. which is not and I don't think it's like belabored. I thought it was done nicely. Um, it's not really stated outright, but it kind of recurs. There's the mask scene, the mask scene and uh, you know, obviously the wrapping on the windows and the windows blowing open mm-hmm. it, it expresses itself, comes out in Weathering Heights. Right. Um, right. You know, Kathy's ghost on the wrapping on the window and mm-hmm. Heathcliff saying, come in. And then later in this film, um, I don't know if this is true in the Brontes real world. Emily is being celebrated by her family and it looks like, you know, close neighbors um, in their home for her for her success with Weathering Heights. And her father toasts to her. And he says two things. One is that he never really understood her, um, but also that it has become clear with her success how much she is like her mother and how much of her, I, I forgot the words that he uses, but basically like, you know, so much of her talent or what's good in her really comes from her mother. Um, it Which has I don't know what that him. means. I mean, again, if, you're, if you care about the reality, <laughs> I guess it's just being imposed. I guess so. Yeah. I, I, I liked it though. It rang true to me on some like gut level. It's like, yeah, her father would misunderstood her, would misunderstand her, uh, mm-hmm. like in this world um, that they've constructed in this film. Well, but why? Um, Patrick Bronte was himself a published poet as a young man. I mean, well, again, within, within um, the world of this film, though, in this, in this film, sure. right in the like, well, in and the isn't world it they've set up, light, you know, that of course it has to come from the mother. I don't think so because of how it's done. Um, and then at the end, I thought it was like striking. She runs out of that party away from her own success, seemingly unable to handle it, which I, you know, I don't know, seems true to character and runs out into the moors um, and sort of spins around in a delirious way and becomes ill um, as Kathy will do, you know, in, in her book later. But it's like her 
um, whatever the, that spirit of the mother was, it's connected to the Moors and it's, it's a, it's a creative destructive force. Um, and I like something about that. It wasn't, it's not like straightforwardly positive <laughs> or empowering, but it's like, the, you know, the thing that, the thing that gives you your creative fire can also kill you. And she seems somewhat like fulfilled and peaceful about that by the end of the film. And so to me, it hung, it all like hung together in a, in a good way. Um, and I didn't, I didn't see the mother as creative spirit belabored, but I don't, I don't know. That was just my subjective. Well, no, it's, like it's, a, it's a major component. You know, the, the, the framing question is Emily Bronte's on her deathbed and Charlotte Bronte is kind of demanding of her. How did you write Wuthering Heights? Mm-hmm. And so that becomes the question that's being sort of answered by the flashback to her life. Um, mm-hmm. And so what's being emphasized is the the grief for the mother, the affair with the curate, and the relationship to Branwell, the wild relationship to Branwell Bronte. When when she, when he, it's not just him being, you know, erratic and disciplined and unable to stick to anything. It's you know, you know she is is becomes his full partner. And mm-hmm. running around, you know, blah blah blah, and those three things together allow her to write, you know, Mothering Heights. So that's that's how it's framed. So yeah, they're certainly making the mother a component part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it's very resonant with that moment in Wuthering Heights where Kathy talks about her dream where she's falling out of heaven, and she said, "You know, I was only going to say that heaven didn't seem to be my home. Mm-hmm. Um, I broke my heart with weeping, uh, you know, wanting to get back to." Um, Uh, coming back to earth and it seems like that's that moment uh, how she's receiving success she doesn't want to be in the heaven of success Mm -hmm. she wants to go you know back out into the heath or whatever Mm -hmm. um and that just rang true to her character i I like that um to me it was like unexpected and um i I like that she seemed fulfilled and not miserable and full of regret by the end of her life i think maybe that's kind of what you're getting at when you're saying we should all be so lucky <laughs> to write a, a masterpiece and you know um oh i certainly find the beauty and where yeah. we are <laughs> in a in a profound way <laughs> yeah. um and to find a way to live where you're you are you are true to your you are true to yourself uh, like a hundred percent as far as we can tell yes. she wrote what she wanted yes did she have to use a male pseudonym yes she did she still wrote what she wanted she got mm-hmm. to live on the moors with animals instead of having to, you know, corset herself into what was required of a low-level teacher or governess. It was going to be soul agony. She literally could not do it. So mm-hmm. for anyone who's, you know, and I know this in the cliche of feminism, we like to go back to the 19th century so we can say, isn't it awful, you know, that they got stuck at home. And But for Emily, it was the best possible life she could have gotten. I mean, other than being rich and not having to, you know, do domestic labor and all the rest of it. But, mm-hmm. but I'm always just like, what do you, what is the standard for you of happiness? Is, is it like everyone's got to go to college and everybody's got to, mm-hmm. you know, have a kind of, you know, fake freedom with what you're calling freedom, which isn't freedom, you know, mm-hmm. it, she actually finds a way toward her own freedom, absolute creative freedom. Mm-hmm. Even if she has to do contorting things to get there, but that just doesn't impress people because it's so it's so nicely cliche. Um, to be like, <laughs> but they had to wear constricting clothes and they had no legal right. And I'm like, yeah, 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 lots of bad things, lots of bad things right now. Not as bad as mm-hmm. some of them, but lots of bad. 
but it's still like, is there a way you can, is there a kind of magic door you can go through? Can you find a way within the constraints? Mm-hmm. And that she did so triumphantly is so, <laughs> that makes her such an amazing creature. Absolutely. And, yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I think the film, I mean, you're right. It does cow to certain conventions by giving her a boyfriend (laughs) and stuff um but i think that its portrayal of women in the society in general is not as phobic as it could be there is one character charlotte's friend who comes to visit them who does seem like caricature ish of um the the feminist fear of 19th century womanhood mm-hmm. she's she's a priss and she's got tiny little hands but she, <laughs> that yeah. she talks a lot about but she seems fairly like um minimized to me i think um the sisters i i didn't see so much of that fear or um stereotypical way of portraying 19th century women um th- that i expected uh, as i expected um what did you think about that I, you know, I, I think I'm probably distracted by the things that were maddening me that I did. See. I, it just, hmm. it just seems to me that there's, there's always something that's sort of maddening about the way you have to have a woman with her hair flowing free, running around or something, something <laughs> in a way that would have got her tagged as nuts. You know, you saw the same <laughs> thing in, uh, in Little Women when you got, um, yeah, the woman playing Joe Greta Gerwig, galumphing down the street with her skirts hiked up to her hips, because she just got published or some damn thing. And you're just like, look, <laughs> you could. There were ways of balancing your radicality with the fact that you had to have your hair up by the time you were certain yeah. in public. Uh-huh. But we, we, because we can only conceive of things in certain utterly simplistic ways. It's all, it's always got to go this way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So for me, there's just all of these encoded, like, oh, this is the 19th century. I'm I'm amazed you didn't have an agonizing scene of her putting on the corset because we, there's a fixation on the corset. It's like, oh my God, indeed, horribly constricting garments, couldn't breathe properly, all sorts of bad things about them, but it got, it's gotten turned into the biggest cliche um of the 19th century that gets trotted out every time you want to see someone like in pirates of the caribbean every time you want to see someone a woman get liberated somebody's got to cut the stays or she's got to cut them or she's got to <laughs> stop wearing it or whatever the fuck uh-huh. um so there's all this clothing fixation like that was has to have been the very worst thing <laughs> endured or hair putting up fixation that kind of thing. yeah 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 so, you know, I'm probably overly maddened by things, by things like that. Or, you know, women have to act out in ways that they just wouldn't, they were just so trained into. So, you know, you got, yes. you got Emily just making faces all over creation. Like, again, she's not crazy. <laughs> she could govern herself to the extent that she could keep her demeanor in public. I mean, come sure, on. Sure. She would have had a reputation of being truly out of her mind. If she couldn't, but they've constantly got Emily grimacing and grinning and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. And you're just like, look, she's not nuts. (laughs) She can she can can hold her face still. (laughs) Um, So things like this that are that are maddening, but no one would notice or anything. So just they're not as egregious as they could be in lots of other. Sure. Yeah. But it's just like having to demonize Patrick Bronte. He has to just be Mm -hmm. pointlessly cruel, a pointlessly cruel martinet. Because that's hmm. how the father has to be. You know, that's just the way 
it's got to be portrayed because otherwise for he's got to be the bad patriarch and there's got to be the lost matriarch and you know you're just like okay because it's just the logic that you can see has to work out that way otherwise it's too complicated people can't figure out what's going on you can't Mm. have patrick bronte published poet you also can't have emily bronte does not publish her work under her own name so wuthering heights gets published under you know ellis bell they all take pseudonyms. Ellis, what is it? Ellis and Kerr, Kerr, there's Kerr Bell. Yeah. Third. What's Anne's? Anton? No, it's not that. Well, it's, I don't know. it's an odd one. They all had picked odd names, but with their same so they could keep their initials. But so so her father didn't literally didn't know she had written Wuthering Heights till after she died. That's how secret it was. Oh my God. Yes. It's Acton Bell. Dramatic. Yeah. Acton. That's it. Acton yeah. Bell. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it was pu- it was published under Ella. I can understand you, you're not going to be able to do all this, all the intricacies of a life. You know they don't conform that well to narrative <laughs> um, mm-hmm. without changing detail. But you know it's just, this is just a take that's so different from what the life was that it's hard because especially because there's only going to be so many biographies made, and it's just like once you make this one, you can't make another one for probably many years. That's true. Someone who would like to see an Emily Bronte biography that actually really is feminist because it's really about her. Uh Um, You're not. I'm not going to get that. So, and maybe it's impossible to make. Maybe no one would come. Maybe no one would like it. So, no, it be it would be so cool. It would be that film we saw about. um, Oh God, the folk horror one that you missed. Um, I think due to like another. I don't know the the theater not being able to like project the movies but it's about that girl who like lives in a cave and then emerges and the whole world oh, no, is vibrant one. to her <laughs> oh, the one i the one i loved uh what was it called again we both loved it fuck what was that called it was so good um Shoot. Uh, okay uh, no it's oh, going we're gonna have to look we did a whole horror. episode on it. we did yeah <laughs> and the mother with the whisper whisper mama versus the witch mama and all that you won't be alone you won't be alone you won't yeah. Yes. 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 I, th- I think an Emily Bronte biopic would be like that. A true that one. Would be, <laughs> right. That would be great. Some way of kind of communicating what it really is to be alienated from society in a profound way and yet hugely responsive to the natural world. That yeah. Would be, you need imagination, like big imagination to be able to do that. And that's pretty rare. Yeah. 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 The most we're going to get <laughs> is it's pictorially beautiful. <laughs> like you're gonna get it really is. nice shots like they are they really are very very nice i was moved by the the depictions of writing i was those final two moments and i think it's just because that i mean they shot i'm presuming in in the bron in the girl's rooms i didn't know who, i don't know whose room it was in the in the film it's depicted as emily's mm-hmm. um and i don't know there's magic there i just like i i i just love that little alcove and i love the trees and i love imagining that Mm-hmm. the brontes maybe those trees were there when the brontes were there and that's enough for me and to me this is like what film i've been on this for a little bit because i've been teaching digital media and obviously this is a digital film but it's doing the thing that i love about analog film which is like mm-hmm. it's actually capturing a part of the world mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and um I'm just like thrilled by the indexical relationship mm-hmm. between the image that I'm seeing on the screen and the fact that like maybe the Bronte girls looked at those same trees. Mm-hmm. It's enough for me. It's like Georgia O'Keeffe painted this 
tall, tall tree. I don't know what kind of tree it is. I'm a dumbass. Mm-hmm. At D.H. Lawrence's ranch mm-hmm. in north of Taos. And um, I, a dear friend and I snuck into this place. It's like run by the University of New Mexico, but which means it's not run at all. And <laughs> you can't get in. And we snuck in and we sat on this bench and we looked up at this tree that's the same damn tree that's in the painting. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it's so enchanted by that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm seeing the same tree that Georgia O'Keeffe and D.H. Lawrence looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me in this film, like, honestly, that's enough. <laughs> I just, like, <laughs> I just, I, I was so thrilled by it. And I'm thrilled that the create, like the creative process is depicted as going out, not in, mm-hmm. you know, it's more like open the damn window. You don't have to drill into your soul and look for some essence or whatever. It's by paying attention and, you know, kind of like getting out of your damn way that things come to you. I, I, I was, I was thrilled by that. And mm-hmm. I, I think I'll hold on to that for some time to come. So. Well, yeah, and you're right. So much, so much of one's experience of, you know, this test case film, but any film is how much it can resonate with aspects of things that you care about yourself. So for there you me, go. <laughs> it's, it's the missing aspects that are driving me crazy. And for you, you're actually finding the aspects. So for me, it's like, I have a huge investment. This is another reason I like, I care about little women. Of the idea of intense childhood experiences informing creativity. And they can be bad intense, good intense, whatever. Especially like these are both, in both cases, they're portraits of children who are actively engaged creatively in ways that inform their their later lives in a big way. Um, The Brontes being the much more intense, um, almost frighteningly too intense, the way Branwell and, and Emily Charlotte lived in these in these imaginary worlds out there on the, <laughs> in this remote parsonage on the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that it seemed like it was as likely to destroy them as I think it did Branwell as cause them or, or can kind of ignite their creative abilities. Yes. Yes. So it, it's that combination of whatever they were, was cooking amongst them as kids does something to them. So in that way it is both interior, but yes, then you've got to aim it. Then you've got to move toward, <laughs> toward the world around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're that fascinating combination of being almost too, too tightly enmeshed, too into their heads when they're kids. Mm-hmm. And then the painful process of being forced out in the world, which is disastrous for most of them. Mm-hmm. And how painfully it gives rise to this kind of, this kind of thing that emerges in between. You know, another movie that's wonderful, it's sort of related, is Heavenly Creatures, where it's like <laughs> two people, two children, they're still teenagers, um, too enmeshed in an imaginative world, has the potential to turn out creatively, turns toward something very, very dark, which is the murder of one of their mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, later in life, one of the two winds up becoming a hugely best-selling writer of mystery. <laughs> um, <laughs> of course. Um, isn't in the movie. But 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 that, that kind of thing, I really miss that. That's not really creative. That's not really given any respect. In the True. Film. It's just treated as, well, that was stupid. That was a silly thing. You really need to stop being that way. Even though it's, it sort of starts with Emily. She's living oh. in her head. She's out on the moors, you know, pulling grass stalks and, and in character, clearly living out one of the narratives that, they, that they've written together. And, and then she winds up being rebuked by Anne. And, and it seems like kind of ending the that um, engagement that in fact was vital to their creativity. Um, I thought the ending of the film sort of redeemed that 
period of storytelling, um, maybe in a stupid Mm. way, but on her deathbed, Emily does say, remind Charlotte how much she loved Charlotte's storytelling. And that is true. Yeah. And, and Charlotte throughout the, this film is portrayed as having abandoned her dreams and her childlike imagination. And it's Mm -hmm. Emily's encouragement of, you know, um, for her to reconnect with that, that it leads her to re to write Jane Eyre. Um, again, that might be like so stupid because Charlotte seems to have a burning uh, yeah. need to write just as much <laughs> as any of the other yeah, girls. We all do. <laughs> but, poor Anne. My heart goes out to poor Anne Bronte, long moldering in her grave. She can't get no respect. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> it's barely a walk-on role in this movie. She's just this, this hey you. <laughs> she has nothing. Well, that's the next about. film. Eileen, maybe you just have to write Anne. <laughs> <laughs> just Anne. Yeah, just Anne. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That would be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I think, I think, unless, do we have anything else? No, I'm, think, we're done. I think we've crashed <laughs> through. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, and that's it for our episode that we are calling, I don't think I already said this, Emily and the Blasphemed Brontes. Um, <laughs> so thank you, dear listeners. And of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who keep us in opium and quilled pens. Um, <laughs> if you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the film site content instead of just half. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us in two weeks for more fabulous film talk on Film Suck. And as we noted, we're going to be talking Poker Face, which I'm really looking forward to. Until then, thank you once again for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.